need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of the Watch Podcast. What we did here is take all of my conversations with Amanda Dobbins about season four of the crowd and put them all together in one episode. Over the last couple of watch episodes, Amanda and I have been chatting about the the episodes from season four. So we did one through three, four through six, and then seven through 10. So we decided to take them all and put them all in one podcast so you can enjoy them over the Thanksgiving weekend. We'll get into my conversation with Amanda. It's about you know an hour and a half. You can look at the time codes to switch around and pick. In the, in the latter part of the podcast, we kind of had a more general conversation about where the crown is at, where it's where it started and where it's going in the, uh, the death of Princess Diana years that are going to probably address, obviously, in the next two seasons, the remaining two seasons of the show. So let's get into my conversation with Amanda Dobbins. I am joined, what is now becoming a tradition unlike any other. They say that about the masters. I'm talking to the master of the crown. It's Amanda Dobbins. Hello, Chris. I'm elated. Yeah, it's, it came and it's beautiful. It's here and it's beautiful. It's season four of the crown. I was a latecomer to this show. I was resistant at first. It took me a little while. And uh, it's quickly become, or quickly, it's slowly become one of my favorite things on television, probably of this decade. I think season four is remarkable. Amanda and I have decided to, we're going we're gonna, to like, get as much out of this as we possibly can. So we're going to do three episodes at a time, uh, and then the so, so three, three, and then four. Amanda, you are sticking to that in terms of your watching as well, right? Yes, I've only seen three episodes of The Crown as of this recording, which I don't want to just completely air myself out on this podcast, but I need people to understand that pop culturally speaking, this is the season of television I've been waiting my whole life for. Like, yes. And that's that's not a joke and that's not an exaggeration. I have a... um just a very deep and somewhat unexplained, frankly, interest in the Royal family and specifically the Diana years. I um, have read a book by Tina Brown called the Diana Chronicles, which is a biography of the late princess Diana and really about this celebrity and media culture that surrounded her in the eighties more times really than I can count. I don't know why I've read this book so much. I think it is a fantastic book about celebrity and media, and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in The Crown. But I just know too much about everything that's happening here. And so have been waiting for years and possibly decades for it. And I have to tell you, so far it lives up to that insane expectation, which I'm amazed by. So when you were going into this, was there a part of you, what was the thing you would be most skeptical about their ability to pull off? Was there anything that you were like, you know, the thing is, is that I, was it Emma Corrin? Was it Mm -hmm. the idea of like who they were going to cast as Diana? Because obviously there's going to be a pretty quick changeover of acting duties here. Right. Or was it maybe just like the capturing the fame around her, which I think we're only just getting into by fairy tale, the third episode. Yeah, I think the Diana of it all and who you're going to put in that role is is difficult, though, you know, I think it's probably more difficult for people of our age than it would be for, say, Kaya or even for Emma Corrin herself, who I believe was two when Princess Diana um, died and so has no memory of her. And you and I have a memory of her that is 25 years old at this point. So even our memory of that media sensation, it's, it is possibly a bit easier to recreate. And well, it's like we have memories of our memories almost like, it's like, we remember it being a, a thing on television. We remember 
mourning, like people mourning her death. We remember Candle in the Wind. We remember all the stuff around her. The thing that's been amazing about watching this season so far is it is essentially like my lifespan. You know, it's it's like now we are in like, but more kind of personally, this is some of the stuff that's happening even outside of the Royals with Thatcher. And we're going to get into Jillian uh, Anderson's portrayal of Margaret Thatcher and Peter Morgan's portrayal of Margaret Thatcher is my dad. You know, my dad was uh, British. He moved to the United States in, in the late 60s, but remained very close with his family over there and has very, very specific opinions about Margaret Thatcher, which are not positive uh, at all. Correct. Um, and it, it, I don't know if you were coming to this show blind, if you would understand the levels of hatred people had for Thatcher, like a lot of people had for Thatcher. But certainly not. And I, we'll talk more about that specifically in, in episode two. But, you know, to your question of like what I was concerned about, whether what they would get right, not necessarily what they would get right, but I was very curious about just how the show would take sides. And a show like this with this many characters and this much uh, drama as this season certainly has, um, if you don't know the story of Charles and Diana, I mean, I guess spoiler alert for the rest of this <laughs> podcast, but like also you're on a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. also if you don't I know watch the, story, the crown, but don't care sure. about Charles and Diana. <laughs> but also, you know, if you like don't know the story of Margaret Thatcher in the eighties in England, like spoiler alert, you're in for a wild ride. And I, it's always been so interesting to me to try, try to parse the question if how this show feels about the crown itself. And, and obviously it's Royalist and obviously it's ultimately because the queen is at the center of the show. It, it is empathetic with her. And I think she probably comes off better than not, but now that everyone's kind of in the great game together, which is really what this decade is about between Margaret Thatcher and Diana and the queen at the center, it's, it's really interesting to see where the show's allegiances are and how it interprets these moments that we knew about from reading the newspaper or have like maybe become lore in our memories, but how they're presenting the version of events is really interesting. And so far has not like a hundred percent aligned with my understanding, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's a richer text. There's also the danger of of poisoning people against the characters that I think. I, I think that the thing that I, I'm most fascinated by is Peter Morgan's obviously a very empathetic writer. And he's he's one of our best television writers, one of our best dramatic writers. And you can feel as these first three episodes go, just a kind of souring on Charles a little bit. I think, you yeah. know, he, there's a degree to which he is helpless. And I, I when I when I refer to these people, by the way, I'm I am personally entirely referring to their fictional quasi-fictional representation in this show i don't really have a ton of knowledge about these people but if you watch the previous season i i think it, it i would go as far as say is that you'd be pretty cold not to kind of fall in love with charles and or at least feel very deeply for him and feel very deeply for how his life got sort of taken from him in a lot of ways now maybe not anywhere near <laughs> as badly as it did for generations of english people in lots of different ways but the way in which his life was not his own is, is tragic, you know? And I think a lot of people were like, for lack of a better term, team Charles in a lot of ways. And then as you get into this season, he's, he's more and more of a bastard. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think even I, in the last season, I was surprised by the extent to which I was team Charles. I credit a lot of it to Josh O'Connor's performance. I think he is 
extraordinary, but you're completely right that the portrayal, especially in the second half of season three, there's that just absolutely tremendous episode about him going to Wales and searching for like some sort of family and understanding and sense of purpose that he cannot find at his home. Um, you know, and even there, there's that tension of that he has to go to Wales, which is a country that is uh, protesting its British rule. Yeah. Like throughout the episode, there's that tension of like, these people don't even want him, but it's the only place he can find acceptance. And, you know, throughout the season, and especially the the Camilla of it all, which has echoes of the the Margaret and um, Captain Townsend, I think his name is, but the the marriage she wasn't allowed to pursue in season one. And that's another interesting thing about this season. We've covered enough time where you're starting to see echoes and they're yeah. echoing certain scenes as well and like shots as well as themes, which I think is so exciting. But yeah, you felt bad for him. And now it's just kind of curdling mm-hmm. if if that makes any sense and i think that there are moments of of real empathy and also moments of him being like a real jerk yeah and careless and with of, people's lives yeah yeah and and entitled and one thing that's really s- stuck out to me in the first three episodes you know obviously the royal family's entitlement and cluelessness has always been on display in these seasons but it's starting to become more of like a character trait and mm-hmm. more obvious they're and they're not really putting anyone down in any specific way but if you start connecting the dots between what you see the, the queen doing and some of the choices she's making and some, what you see charles doing and some of the choices that he's making and these people are just divorced from reality which is absolutely the case and i think increasingly the case as the years go on the dedication that this show has to essentially telling elizabeth's story uh, mm-hmm. The idea that that the crown is essentially Elizabeth's story that, you know, there are these framing devices, whether it's the prime ministers who come to meet with her or whether, you know, it's her extended family. But ultimately, that that's going to be what this show is. We talked about this a little bit last season as Elizabeth gets more and more static. How does that mm-hmm. affect the show itself? What have you felt in that regard for the first few episodes? You know, I thought it was very funny in her kind of first episode, her first scene, I'm sorry, with um, Jillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. And she's just comic relief. And I like, I think she's very funny and a a little bit of is because Olivia Coleman is like one of the great actresses, but also comedic actresses of our time. And so she's playing it for laughs and you kind of see a little bit, like I did wonder like how much of the character is being written to her, you know, and her strengths. But I, I think in a lot of ways, this season and I've only seen three episodes, so I can't really be spoiling it. will like be about the queen in the ways that she is eclipsed, because Mm -hmm. I think the story of the eighties, certainly in in the UK, but certainly in the Royal family is you have kind of the, the twin rising sons of Margaret Thatcher and princess Diana who uh, take all of the limelight and attention and kind of wreak havoc and the the queen who is supposed to be like a stable force in the center of the show is like definitely none of those things or can't be any of those things. And so I, in some ways it's about her in absence or in reaction and uh, happily Olivia Coleman is really good at reaction, but it'll be interesting to see as they, as this season goes on. So we can start talking about episode one, if you'd like, that was, um, that's the gold stick and that's where we meet Thatcher and the episode itself is largely mm-hmm concerned with the sort of the death of Mountbatten and the reaction to that. And I think it sets up a pretty useful, like 
structure that the show, I think, continues at least through through these first few episodes where they essentially do two episodes within each episode. There's Mm -hmm. the Margaret episode and then there's the royal family episode and it's brought together by some sort of thematic cohesion, whether it's a stag hunt or, you know, like whatever. Uh, I, I only know kind of like my dad's version of it and a lot of what I've read in frankly, like novels rather than history about England at the time. But you really do get the impression that Thatcher comes along and unwinds slash dissuades people of all these notions of what it means to be English, you know, and not necessarily in in a pleasant way, but both the the royals and the sort of the lords of, of the land and their ideas about like what their role in society is and what kind of sway they have over society and at that same time, the more blue-collar working-class trade unionist ideas about like what it means to go to work in England and what you sort of deserve for doing so. And Margaret comes through and just kind of wipes away all of it with these austerity measures and all this kind of fiscal uh, philosophy that she applies to, to England. What did you think of the first episode? Yeah, I should clarify that I might be a Diana scholar, but I'm definitely not a scholar of British, yeah. like economic history or or political history, uh, which says a lot about me. And once again, I'm telling on myself. But yeah, I I would say that my understanding, you know, primarily like from novels and history, is that the Margaret Thatcher pro- project was undoing the post war project in Britain, mm-hmm. and she is not looked upon kindly for that. Uh, at least socially. And, and, and so I found myself in episode one, uh, you know, it, Jillian Anderson walks in and obviously Margaret Thatcher had a particular way of speaking and a particular way of dressing and a particular um, hairdo that his, you know, other, others have, have uh, parodied or recreated as the case may be. And even won Oscars for it in the case of Meryl Streep. So, but she comes in and you're kind of like, okay, this seems a little bit, not like an SNL sketch, but I'm going to need a minute to ease into this. Yeah. And then I think what she's doing is pretty remarkably nuanced to the point that later on I was like, oh, wait, am I not supposed to completely see her as evil incarnate? Um, And again, that's that's the thing I was talking about of trying to figure out the motivations, but also where this show sees the motivations. She plays a pretty it's kind of expository for her mm-hmm. in, in episode one, right? Because then she shows up and is trying to, and obviously she'll be a major character, but also kind of sets the political scene in, in the UK and its neighbors, which then sets up the, the Mountbatten death, which is the, the center of the episode. Is that something that you knew about before watching this? episode? Um, I knew that he was killed by the RA. Yeah. Um, just from my, like, reading about Irish history generally and and a little bit interested in the troubles. Like I was pretty aware that that happened. It was also, I believe not spoiled, but like they had pictures of Charles dance filming that scene in the daily mail. Oh, did they? They did like a big, like mountain Batten's death scene. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't get too attached to Charles dance yet again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's true. (laughs) But I, I thought that that scene was sort of illustrative of, of what we're talking about. If you read about Mountbatten, he has some, 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 some strikes in the con column. You know what I mean? I mean, he is essentially the avatar of British colonialism 
and mm-hmm. may or may not have participated in planning a coup. You know, so yes. he, he's, he in the in the show itself, I think he is seen as like a passive participant in that, who gets a rap on the knuckles, if I remember correctly, for his his role in possibly right. overthrowing Wilson. But you are left to feel the massive hole in Charles's life when Mountbatten dies, which is this complicated thing that this show does over and over again. Especially because of that absolutely just vicious scene between Philip as played by Tobias Menzies and Charles, which was like, I was a little surprised by because the show isn't usually that obvious. Mm -hmm. And I don't even want to say that it's obvious, but this just... Philip says to Charles exactly what he's feeling, which, you know, I've been led to believe is not what British people do. And it's, he's definitely helped by alcohol and in the, in the wake of a a loss. Um, But he's just like, yeah, you supplanted me. And I guess it's not completely obvious because he's clearly talking, he is talking about how Charles supplanted him in, um, in Dickie in Mountbatten's life. But it's like, Definitely also about how he's going to be the king and he's more important. And it's, you know, about Philip's hold. I'm just like the sidekick issues, yeah. which sure. But once again, he's a soldier who never really had a war. Yeah. He's, all these things. Yeah. Right. Right. But yes, this show presents it as a, a tremendous loss, which uh, through everything I've read in terms of the role that he played in that family, I think it was, and it like was to, to Charles as well. I don't know whether this letter that was written is historically accurate. And we'll talk more about how and why Charles decides to marry Diana. Mm -hmm. I think the accounts that I've read aren't as straight a line, but of course that's, you know, TV making. And it's probably also just like a lot of therapy being done in real time. So good job, everybody. But, but I did anyway, I, I did know that it was coming from the moment that the episode started because it's it b- begins with a, a voiceover of um, some sort of IRA broadcast. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, even there, the show it's I, 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 where its allegiances are on that one on the troubles. We don't really need to get into, but I, I like I did think that the it was interesting how when they show Mountbatten's funeral that the um, the broadcast comes back. Yeah. Eighteen the the eighteen taken from and Mountbatten. Yes. We got 18 and Mountbatten referring yes. to the ambush of the British soldiers as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, it, it's complicated. You know, I, I feel like Mountbatten, both in what I've read about him historically and especially in the show, is the connection that the royal family still has to actual governing. Is this person who was actually playing roles in um, the defense of England in its its projects overseas, its empire building, um, seemed to have some sort of hand in the shaping of things. And then when he disappears, not only does Charles's, you know, nominal father figure disappear, but sort of this connection to, I, you know, in, there, there's, their sphere of influence shrinks considerably in, after his death, I think. Yes, absolutely. He's also a connection to empire, as you, I mean, as you said, in a really... And they're playing Ibble Dibble in the, in the sitting room. That's sort of where they wind up, you know? It's yeah. But I mean, it is kind of, this show is so good and I think it's so well-written and I think it finds like the, the humanity and really interesting domestic stories in these people. 
who we don't have a lot of access to. I think that's tremendous television, but you do watch someone like Mountbatten and you're like, okay, well, he was first a part of the German Royal family because back in, you know, the beginning of the century, all the Royal families were connected and then no one else survived. And so then they tried to extend the empire this way. I mean, we're, it's another time. It is like, like, it's literally like deciding who gets to be King of Spain. Cause like his cousin wants to be, but it's it's going to make problems. if Preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so what did you think of the introduction to Diana? So we get uh, to see her, you know, dynamite. I, that's, full, full Shakespeare peeking around the plant. I, I, I was astonished. I, I will say that I texted you eight minutes into watching episode one of The Crown <laughs> last night, and it was after that scene, and I was just like, "This show is unbeatable. Yeah, it is so good, and just and and that is like pure like symbolic TV, like whatever." you know, movie making of bringing together the themes and the staging and the visuals and the chemistry. It's all working. It's so well-crafted. I I honestly don't know if Diana Spencer ever read a Midsummer Night's Dream in real life, but I don't care. It it was incredible. I wonder, there's this thing that the crown does that I think is amazing, which is it spends all of its capital on a relatively small stage. You know, it's like, that scene in that setting with her or um, some of the things that happen in the next couple of episodes with her kind of whiling away her days while Charles is on these long trips Mm -hmm. is like so overwhelming in terms of its detail and in terms of its scale and scope. But then they kind of keep it in those doors. Like you don't, you know, we see Mountbatten's death but we don't really get lots of cutaway scenes to different IRA situations or what Thatcher's policies were starting to do. And I think that that does kind of dull the impact of understanding some of the damage that she did. But at the same time, when you're in that room and you're watching these two people meet, it feels like the entire universe. Like, and, and what they choose to cash in on versus what they choose to withhold or skip over is really fascinating to me. I completely agree. And I, one thing that I was going to say about these three episodes um, that was not missing for me at all, but, and forgive me if this is a really, really dumb realization to make in season four of a show that I've watched obsessively and have thought about nonstop, but I was like, there is, there's a real contained insular nature to this. This is, this is a show that like is about history and power and, and England, and it it is interested in those themes, but only to the extent that those themes reveal something about these people. It's a people first. Or how they experience them. Like when you think about Elizabeth going to that town in Wales, that's had the landslide, there are plenty of tragedies that have probably occurred during her reign, but she was there for that one. Otherwise these things are things that are happening on television. These things are the things that are happening on the radio. Yeah. And especially watching the Diana of it all, um, because in episode two and episode three, as she's integrated into the family, there is outside these walls, just like a massive media storm going on. Right. And that's how like you and I would have been familiar with it. I mean, we were not really following the news then I wasn't alive, but we've seen the footage. Like we are familiar with Diana through that, that media filter and, she is a media creation to some point. And so part of me was like, okay, but like, where is that? You know? Right. Cause that was like such a big deal, but that's not the exercise of, of this show. And I need to not be greedy was my, uh, was the lesson of that. 
Let's talk about Balmoral test. Is that a yeah. thing? I, I mean, I've never been invited and I certainly don't think I would pass it. <laughs> well, it's definitely a thing with most people where it's like, you have to come meet my parents. Yeah. But I, I just mean, was the idea that prospective spouses were brought to this Scottish castle for a weekend of yeah. you know, board games and hunting and I'd, if they pass the muster? I don't know if it is anything that formal because, you know, even within the context of the episode, the the test isn't named, right? Sure. It's just kind of like a up and down. But I, I do think it happened fairly often. I Everything that they say about Charles's dating life is like quite true. He was he was a man about town, as um, as they say. And Diana did make an early trip to Balmoral and was like considered a success. And so that meant that she was suitable. I think, you know, it's their stronghold. It is the place where they go on vacation, even though it doesn't look like a vacation to me. I mean, it is just raining everywhere all the time. And people are like, ah, summer. I love it. Yeah, well, I, I know. I, it's, it's, I couldn't, it couldn't be me. But the idea that someone can either sink or swim in those particular circumstances um, is like definitely how they operate and that it's not named and that it's not kind of like that there is the protocol sheet, but you can still get things wrong because you misread it and you're kind of set up to fail. I mean, that's elitism. That's what happens to Margaret is like, she shows up in black tie and everybody is like wearing their barber jackets. Yeah, sure. And I like, am not a member of the British upper class, but it's, you know, that's how all, a lot of privileged people in aristocracies work, right? Is that they set up a bunch of rules that you don't know are there and then right. you get kept out because of them. So this episode does the same thing where it basically the first half of it is a Margaret's experience at Balmoral Castle and then the second half is Diana's. The thing I wanted to ask you most about is, I wouldn't necessarily call it a flaw in the show, but I would say mm-hmm. one of my blank spots as a viewer is understanding the nature of Charles and Camilla's relationship through his courtship with Diana. And I think a little bit of time passes, obviously, between the first episode and the second episode. And he's obviously having these intimate conversations with Camilla, who only ever talks on the phone with the same hairstyle in front of the same fire (laughs) every every time. (laughs) They definitely got Emerald Fettel to do all of her scenes in like a block. Yeah. But um, I think that I was a little thrown off because I was like, are they still seeing one another intimately? Like she's, she's with Andrew. She has a child. She's hiding her child in this so show, but. <laughs> right. So you're asking, are they having sex? And the answer well, is Well, I was yes. just curious, like what's the yeah. nature of their relationship and how well known was that? So that is a question that is up for some debate in later years. But I, you know, and I want to say with everything I'm relying on the Tina Brown book, the Diana Chronicles, and then the Andrew Morton book um, about Diana, which was written with Diana's cooperation. So biased, but, you know, at least we know the primary sources. The Before they were married, they were very much in contact. And I, there's no reason to assume that they weren't having sex because everyone was having sex. And... I think Andrew Parker Bowles was known to be somewhat promiscuous as well. Right. And, you know, in the show itself, when he's on the phone with Mountbatten just before Mountbatten is killed, he says that he and Camilla are meeting up for a couple of days and that's what starts the fight. So I, I think that there, 
I know that later on, for sure, there is this kind of the nature of their relationship is trying to meet at various like fancy homes around the UK and like all right. of their rich across aristocratic friends would loan out like their various country estates for them. So, I, I mean, there's no reason to believe it wasn't happening then as well. This is the episode that I think we were first asked to really feel sympathy for Margaret um, mm-hmm. because she doesn't understand these customs. I guess we, we've hinted at this, but how did that make you feel? Was it more like in the moment it was, it, you were completely invested and then afterward you were like, wait a second? I, I, I don't necessarily think it's Peter Morgan's job to adjudicate who Margaret Thatcher was outside of the reality of the moment he's writing, but it is an interesting conundrum for the viewer. Okay, so you're talking about Margaret Thatcher and not Princess Margaret, because for a second I thought you were talking about Princess Margaret. I just, no, yeah. no, no, Margaret um, Thatcher. So you, we are supposed to feel bad for Princess Margaret at this point, even though she's just lecturing her on, you know, how to speak and, and where right. to sit. That's a very funny scene. Yeah, I think I, what's most bewildering is that I think the audience is supposed to take Margaret Thatcher's point of view of like, these people are ridiculous. And there is that kind of climactic scene after she's, you know, they've failed the dinner test and after she's failed the stocking test and after she sat in Queen Victoria's chair, which is a real thing that they don't let anyone sit on that. That's for real. A lot of these things are real, but so they're at the, they're at the Scottish games, like the traditional games. I'm throwing the poles and stuff. Yes. And Margaret Thatcher is just being like, these people are imbeciles. They have no culture. They have no like civilization. They have no, like, how are they in charge? And, you know, I think a little bit, you're supposed to at least consider that possibility Mm -hmm. throughout, throughout these first three episodes. And it's very strange to be in Margaret Thatcher's mind, uh, Examining that, because if you can sympathize with her on re-examination of the royal family, then are you going to sympathize with her on the re-examination of everything else that she re-examines, which right. is right. not, which is a dangerous... Like, are you supposed and, to fist pump when she fires everybody? Yeah. I mean, and that's, they're also playing the woman thing, which mm-hmm. is certainly interesting to me. And I think that in the first few seasons, they handled... It was interesting the way that they handled the queen being a young woman in a, what is definitively a man's world. And I always thought that that was a bit interesting. And now they're kind of pitting the two against each other um, as, as we so often do. And I do think you're supposed to, I don't know. I, I think it's meant to highlight the complications of all of this and maybe sure. make you re-examine your relationship to the whole show. Because again, as we mentioned, these, it's, the monarchy is an absolutely absurd institution. What did you think of the relationship between Elizabeth and Thatcher in terms of prime minister power rankings, in terms of the, just the sheer entertainment of watching her interact with this person? I mean, in terms of sheer entertainment, delightful. And they are, they are definitely playing off of each other. And I think Olivia Coleman is having like the time of her life in terms of prime minister power rankings. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it's going to get a lot spicier before, before all is said and done. We're only in what? 1981. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it gets I'll a lot look worse. Not good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, let me tell you something. 84 was bad, guys. Um, I, I'm kind of, a, I'm anxious to get to this moment. So I just, I'm going mm-hmm. to break mm-hmm. ahead and do it um, yeah. for Fairy Tale. I, I, I thought Bound World Test was remarkable. Fairy Tale was like real, like levitational shit. Like, yeah. there's, I certainly didn't like anticipate it, but like when you when you watch in the beginning of Fairy Tale, the Edge of Seventeen moment, 
mm-hmm. you kind of are having like an out of body experience where you're like, yo, they did this. <laughs> they really did yes. this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, no, I, I think it's extraordinary. And the way they've handled Diana throughout is pretty remarkable. It's been interesting in kind of the, the Harry and Meghan era mm-hmm. and people having a renewed interest in the Royal family and trying to kind of explain to people how weird the Royal family is and like kind of how it works and the disconnect between the real world and kind of, and their like their weird Baroque routine. And, you know, I think Meghan Markle has been compared to Diana a lot. And there are a lot of similarities in terms of someone coming into the family who has not been raised in the way that they do things and is like, what the hell is going on? Um, But I thought that fairy tale did such like a, an amazing memory of like creating Mm -hmm. that feeling. And you can really understand it. And you're like, Oh, right. She's just 19 and she wants to listen to her Walkman and, and, has a completely different experience of the world than this creaky old institution. And of course there's going to be friction, but like just having you live it in like through her experience, I like, I I thought was very smart storytelling. And it was also kind of like the best encapsulation of why all of these things go so incredibly wrong as they always seem to do. Yeah. I mean, just the name fairy tale, you think when you, when you see it on the, on the sort of Netflix user interface, you think, Oh, right. Cause she's, she's a princess and she gets mm-hmm. to have her dreams come true. Cause she's going to marry a prince. Mm-hmm. It's really more the fairy tale of the princess stranded alone in the castle. And it's yeah. them, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether Charles is essentially displacing his own frustrations and putting them onto this human being who really didn't ask for that. Mm-hmm. He is saying, I'm miserable. So I'm going to make you miserable too. And I'm going to abandon you in the rain <laughs> and I'm right. going to send you back. And for the first few, few days, it's going to be exciting and you can roller skate around, but you're going to slowly lose it as, as we just isolate you and isolate you and isolate you. And then I make, and then your one contact with the real world is going to be with my on again, off again ex. Yeah. Which is also a real thing. And I like even the note that Camilla writes in the series, like what you can see is the actual, the same text as the note that was given to Diana, which is just like a absolute mind fuck. I, I think this episode is so well done and and it makes the choice. Like it makes the choice to be like, this is a person who's cut off and this Mm -hmm. is what's going on. And I think it's pretty exhilarating as someone who has read so many different accounts of these things and been so fascinated to watch the show be like, here's what's happening. Yeah. And here's our interpretation of it. And, and here's to who's to blame to an extent. I do think that there was like a, there's a lot more going on in real life. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about it because yeah. I thought it was a real interesting choice that they, they never break from Diana's perspective there. Like right. Charles goes off and we were just like, okay, but like you could have easily leveled out the audience sentiment meter by mm-hmm. having Charles's B plot of like him being like, I'm still sort of like not sure about what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. And instead it just seems actually sadistic on his part. Yeah. And, and I think I wasn't there obviously. And I've just read a bunch of things. I think it's honest. It's the honest choice. Ultimately it's, it's boiling a lot of things down to the essential thing, which is that she's like, a, she was a 19 year old. She was 19 years old. She's as young as you're seeing. And 
got thrown in the deep end with absolutely no support. And Charles was of no help to her, whether it's because he was still in love with Camilla or whether it's because he um, had all of these expectations from his family or, you know, because he screwed up or some version of all of the above. Um, the royal family itself was like no help to her. And, and they show that by the queen just like never being available as mm-hmm. she's usually not available to Charles either. Um, they show Diana's grandmother giving her the training. Yeah. By all accounts, a historically accurate portrayal of that woman. Uh, and, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) that gives you a sense of what she's seeing in her own family. And, you know, her, her family life was a a bit more complicated than you can see just because you don't really see them. But I think like a lack of support and feeling like she's alone and looking for love somewhere else is true to what you see on the show and true to what happened in real life. You don't see the, I guess you see the media in terms of all of the letters coming Mm -hmm. in and the, and that she starts sort of replacing real life company with all of those letters and with that attention. And I'm curious to see what they do in the next episodes, because the impression that you get is that, without any love or, you know, connection to anyone around her, she starts kind of, the power of celebrity is, is very real. And so that kind of starts filling in, but it, it, it really boils it down to the, to the essentials in a way that I, I guess you have to on a TV show, but that, but I was pretty impressed by. They then sort of pivot once Charles returns to, to building up towards the wedding and mm-hmm. you get that, the moment of Charles sort of having this breakdown while the fireworks are going off and talking to yeah. his mother. I thought that was a remarkable scene. And it, it was, it was tough because you are essentially at that point when Charles returns, it's, it's really incredible writing because now you've sort of, if not turned on Charles, you see him in through somebody else's eyes for the beginning of the show. You're kind of seeing the family through Charles's eyes up until that moment. It's mm-hmm. what this what this group of people is doing to him and what they won't let him do. And that's the moment where I'm like, oh yeah, like it's, it's slightly moving. And now we're seeing this guy maybe as a different, as a different kind of character. Yeah, absolutely. I was also really struck with the scene right before that. And this is some real crown nerd stuff. So I apologize, but it's when they're in, St. Paul's is where they got married. They didn't get married in Westminster Abbey. I think because of the size of the church, but they're there for the rehearsal and it's the first time they meet since he's been away on tour and they kind of go into that private chapel to have a fight. And I don't know if you remember the scene from the first season of the crown right before the queen's coronation in what I think is the best episode of, of that season. Um, when Claire Foy and Matt Smith as queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip have a, a fight about their marriage and the power in their marriage and their commitment to the future of their marriage, like in, in a side chapel, Uh, And it's just, it's like a very clear echo and you know, that's like, that's cool filmmaking, but it is also just the generational echo of these people are put in these positions and asked to sacrifice their personal happiness or their relationships and, and increasingly for what? Sure. Right. I mean, that is the thing is like when I, I think when I was watching the, um, the scene between Anne and Charles, Mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of asking I think Anne has arrived at this point, but it's just like, what do you want? You know? Yeah. You know, you're, ne- you are never going to be someone of real consequence in terms of governing, in terms of yeah. deciding the fate of this country. You are now an ornament. 
So within mm-hmm. that reality, what do you want? And he, like lots of people his age, is just like, I don't know, but not this. Yeah. And Anne is just like, trust me, it's easier not to fight it, basically. Yeah. Why can't you accept it? Why can't you just kind of... She's she's the practical one to her core. I was kind of... I was very team Anne. And I've never really cared about her in real life. She seems like cool. Uh, she likes horses. Yeah. Cool. That, horse that's, girl. She's, yeah. I think she's very good at horses, whatever that means. Um, but I, I thought that her season three character was great. And I felt a little betrayed when she just rolls in and is like, get it over with. Yeah. Right. Like, what, what are you guys doing? Like, what are we? <laughs> and like, really? Like no one wants to stop and think about this. And it is interesting. The really way- only Margaret, only Margaret is the uh, princess. Margaret is the one who's like, we can stop this. Yeah. And and even when Charles is saying that, he's portrayed as such a whiner mm-hmm. and a guy who is like being unfaithful or betraying, you know, Diana, which true. I mean, again, this is like a 19 year old who didn't really know what was going on, who just got put in a tremendously unfair situation, but that he's being unfair and a bad person instead of asking some like pretty reasonable questions in real life, Chris, they had met like interacted in person together a total of 13 times before they got married. 13. That's like, what are we doing? Also (laughs) uh, like, and he's obviously got a multi-year relationship on and off again with Camilla. Right. So the the deal is like he and Camilla, like they were, she was the love of his life and she was just never allowed to have her. Yes. That is at least what they're selling now. Now that they have been like happily married for some time. And I think that that is like, a, that that's a very nice story and that they have been married for a very long time. He never gave her up like whether or not it always had to be that way is under, you know, some discussion depending on who you talk to. But the other thing that the show kind of like shies away from, frankly, is that Diana had to be a virgin. Mm-hmm. So the, and not Diana, but whoever Charles married had to be a virgin. So the other reason that Camilla was like a non-starter was she like had a quote past. Right. She was a, so, uh, yeah, adult. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and no one's being like, should we reconsider this? It's right. 1981. Right. Like maybe it's okay. It's very strange stuff. So for the first three episodes, obviously immensely satisfying for you. Yes. Um, and then we're entering into really the, the rocket ship for Diana where she just becomes a global icon. Uh, the, I've, I've watched a few past three. So mm-hmm. I, in, in my, when I got screeners, and I, I'm really excited to see what you think of the next couple. We'll do these conversations every episode for the next three episodes. So I'm so thankful to Amanda for joining me. Any final notes on these first three episodes? I just think it's so rare that a show actually lives up to expectations. Like and this. your expectations I mean, and you were not small for this. Yeah. No, they were sky high. And... I think that that's a testament both to this show kind of it's had four seasons and there is something about maybe not training a viewership, but like getting room to build up to this point because like Margaret Thatcher and Diana is like, you couldn't make a better case study for how to explore what's going on in like in Britain and to explore the queen herself and the nature of, of power and being a, and her relevance. Yeah. And a famous female. Yeah, exactly. But this show kind of did the work leading up to this, but then it's just, just the level of execution. A plus. Yeah. Very pleased. 
Yeah, the writing remains just to me like every single scene, every single line just seems like expert craftsmanship. And it, yeah. it's just, it's so rewarding. I can't wait to talk to you about the next batch of episodes. We'll do that on Thursday, Amanda. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I am now joined by Amanda Dobbins, our resident crown expert. Amanda, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure. And was it your pleasure to watch these middle three episodes of The Crown Season 4? Absolutely. They're crushing it. Are you kidding me? This stuff is... It's really good. We're talking today about favorites, Fagin, and Tara Nullis. And so Mm -hmm. this is basically... It's the episode with all the kids, the episode with the guy who breaks into the palace, and the episode where Charles and Diana go to Australia. And I have to say that I think four... I've seen a few people ding for uh, here and there for some reason. You know, maybe because it's too too well kind of they put too much of a bow on it. I think it's fucking extraordinary. Like if I I thought that favorites was a really like startling achievement in dramatic writing and just in terms of the amount of stuff that they burn through and the way that they bring in all these characters. What did you What did you think of that episode? I agree with you, and I have not seen any criticisms because I don't really consume social media anymore. But to anyone who thinks it's too neat or they put a bow on it, I mean, I guess find another show. Yeah. Uh, this is like, I, you know, Peter Morgan is a playwright. There is a lot of construction and um, intentional thematic and expositional dialogue and set pieces built into this. It's not, it's not that it's obvious, but all of it is like very crafted. So I agree with you that I thought episode four was tremendous in terms of the amount of like information and setup that they managed to convey to you in a very like efficient and effective way, because we don't really know anything about two of the four children. You barely met any of them and has been kind of a side character. And so there are four children who get their own scenes and moments. And so you have to develop those characters. You have to develop the queen's relationship to all of them. You also have the Margaret Thatcher thematic connection Mm -hmm. of the, of the children. And you're drawing out a little bit about Margaret Thatcher's relationship to women as well, which is an important larger thematic episode. And also you've got the Falklands war. I mean, it's, and, and they do it deftly. And I thought about something you say a lot, which is that the, the crown doesn't like, doesn't waste a moment. They just pick the scenes, they pick the lines and you know everything you need to know. That is so hard and they nail it. Yeah, I mean, they they do a lot of stuff that I think other shows would probably shy away from because it would feel too, like it, they, were, they were showing you too many of their cards. So I, I kept thinking about the scene between Elizabeth and Anne you know, they go riding out. This is the mm-hmm. thing that they sort of both share is this love of horses, even though Anne is obviously Philip's favorite. And that's like in the way that that gets conveyed in the beginning. And their conversation is heartbreaking. You know, like their conversation yeah. is legitimately heartbreaking. And I think you could look at what Anne says, where she's like, I used to enjoy being the difficult one and scaring people. Mm-hmm. And now I don't feel like I have any control over that anymore. Mm-hmm. And you could be like, well, like you might go your entire life and never have that level of self-awareness. You know, you might have to go through 30 years of therapy to find that out about yourself. And this young woman just like sort of pops that off when confronted by her mother on a random day. But it's beautiful writing. It's just, it's just like amazing writing. And I, I thought the performances specifically in that scene, mostly because the three sons come off as absolute 
troll lords in this episode. I mean, yeah, but the ants scene in particular was was quite lovely, I thought. Listen, I think that there are levels of emotional breakthrough and clarity in this show that never happened in real life and certainly have never happened in the UK and to anyone who has been <laughs> a citizen right. of that country. Andy so and I just I, spent a lot of time talking about salads in England uh, as they sure. relate because they get a lot of salads in industry and how yeah. most of their salads are just blue cheese and bacon. Their emotional <laughs> relationships are blue cheese and bacon too. They are not talking... Right. They're not doing the, the smart greens. No, I mean, it's a it's a TV show and we are projecting emotions and trying to figure out how these people felt about the facts that we know are true. That's what I think is so interesting about episode four, uh, which made me reflect a little bit of, on the queen character in this season. And an interesting thing is happening. We talked a little bit about this on the last episode where the Olivia Coleman is kind of popping out a little mm-hmm. bit. And Olivia Coleman is one of the great actresses of our time. And also I find her personally hilarious. So I think that that's great. But I see moments where it, nothing is on the page and it's just Olivia Coleman, like giving it that sense of humor, giving it that timing, um, or maybe even the character is being a little bit written to her strengths. And that is also a little bit because the queen is not, I mean, she's not a side character, but the way they're telling the story is about all of the other people and events who are kind of crowding into that character's life and how she's balancing all of it. But episode four is just, it's about the queen and all of the writing, it's character development that is in line with the past three seasons that we've seen. And it's pretty extraordinary. And I think Olivia Coleman also does like a great job with the actual written script and the character and the reacting to like the horror show of her children. I mean, they all are. Do you have a favorite of the four? Who's your favorite? On the show or in real life? No, on the show. I don't yeah. really think uh, they need to like pick. It's definitely favorites. shifted. I think last season it would have been Charles. And yeah. and this season it's probably Anne. Although let me get to the end of it. I mean, it's obviously not Edward or Andrew. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to just quickly before we get into Edward and Andrew and Charles a little bit, ask you, you start this episode up. Did you expect yeah. the wedding? No. If only because, number one, I read some spoilers about how they don't show the wedding. But I do also think in the The wedding previous, between Charles and Diana, obviously. Yes, yeah. The, like, the most watched royal wedding, I think, of all time. I, like, I don't... I should have gotten the statistics. It was close to, like, a billion people who watched it. I mean, that was everywhere and people taped it and watched it like over and over again right yeah, yeah. Uh, in- including me who dvr'd it when bbc america re-aired it before <laughs> the wedding of harry and Meghan, and it was part of their like 12 hour block of programming i watched all of it i mean it's pretty boring you know they didn't really have the production values in 1981 that we expect from a royal wedding now anyway but no there was a sort of finality to episode three mm-hmm. And there was something intentional about the way they showed the rehearsal yeah, and kind of the real behind the scenes emotions where I was like, oh, okay, this is an interesting choice. And like, this is what we're going to get. Um, and also I've seen it before. So yeah. it was fine. Well, like, what me. would I, they do? Cause like there wouldn't be a lot of opportunity for people to be talking during that. So unless there would be some Fagin like wrinkle of history that they wanted to explore, I'm not really sure what they would kind of ex- do there. 
Right. And I, th- I mean, it, it happened at such a scale that even it would defy the, the, the Crown's CGI budget. I will say, I was surprised that Diana disappeared for mm-hmm. two episodes. Yes. I mean, we'll, we'll get to episode five, but she is very briefly shown and she is heavily pregnant when she's shown in episode four and she just won't come out of the room. And in one way, that's really all you need to know about how their marriage is going and how everything is, you know, how everything is is shaken out. But on the other hand, I was like, huh, this is a choice. Diana, pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that the, that was interesting. And also the suggestion that Charles is starting to become under the influence of these like gurus and like self-help and nutritionists, which I didn't, I didn't know that about him. Oh yeah. The, the Lawrence Vanderpost reference. I only know about this from the Tina Brown book, but apparently he brought those books on their honeymoon and then Mm -hmm. tried to get Diana who was 20 at the time of uh, their wedding to read the books and discuss them over dinner on their honeymoon. So that's how that went. And like, you can see the results of it in this episode of the crown when they aren't just speaking to each other, but you also see it a little bit in the the garden scene when he's just kind of doing all of the Xanadu. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like reciting poems and being like, it's important that I have like a, expression of self in these gardens, which is, uh, which extremely is also like my, frankly, like my fuck pad next to Camilla, like, cause it's like yeah. 15 minutes away. Like when, when Elizabeth is like, yeah, yeah, also that's cool. But you also chose this house cause it's 15 minutes from Camilla. Yeah. She's yeah. Elizabeth is quite a gossip. I like how much of the show this season is essentially her going to Anne and be like, I heard you're sleeping with your security detail or her going to Charles and being like, I hear Diana never comes out of her room. And they have the recurring line, right? It's like, I heard talk or I heard chatter. And the person always says, I don't, I thought we didn't listen to chatter. Yeah, right. And that like keeps going again. And then of course they all do. I mean, it's really gossipy. One thing that is illustrated a little bit in like the Buckingham Palace of it all, which we see, but is also true at Kensington Palace, which is where Margaret lives and Charles and Diana live. And, you know, you see it at Charles's you know, personal Xanadu fuck pad country home. It's like the number of people that are around and are witnessing all of this. Yeah. And the Royal family just doesn't care. And they just do whatever they want in front of dozens of people who then just gossip. There are no secrets. It's, they are not covert agents at all. Right. And then there's also this sort of high council of gossip. That's like, Anne, Margaret, the queen mother and Elizabeth yeah. who just gathered a chit chat every, every couple of weeks. Let's talk a little bit about Fagan, which was, I think the closest this episode gets to, I mean, not a bottle episode, but a, a kind of huge detour where it's not about any of our sort of central characters right. per se, and is essentially about Thatcher without being about Thatcher. It's a Thatcher yeah. episode because, and is almost a tonic against, I think the criticism's, some people have levied against the show, which is making Margaret into a very Margaret Thatcher into sort of a sympathetic figure. And you've just gone through this experience of seeing her clearly like very concerned for the well-being of her son, who is on but also I, being like, fuck you to my daughter. Yeah, right. Especially being like, like you're you're my like not my favorite, so who cares? I have to say that like sometimes you just come across something that rich people are fascinated with like car rallies and you're just like why though like why do you care about driving to Dakar like I don't I don't understand it <laughs> I feel like this is a euro thing so you would have more access to it I yeah. like I know I, that 
you at least follow this stuff. Juliet is always trying to get me to She's watch the car with racing yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't because I'm an American and I don't take a lot of pride in that except for the fact that I don't care about like auto racing. Well, I just know that Patrick Dempsey quit Grays so that he could do this. And you know that Fassbender is now like a race car driver? Yeah, it's like they're, it's like robbing part, us of our greatest actors. Patrick Dempsey and Michael Fassbender. Um, anyway, I just thought that the Fagan episode was the tonic. It was the, this is what this woman's policies are really doing. And much like we were saying with Anne seeming to have like this complete understanding of her own impulses and behaviors, Fagan uh, is completely aware of like how the institutional state apparatus is making him into a marginalized person. Right. I mean, the basically soliloquy that he gives the queen once he breaks in for the second time and they they have their meeting, um, which is all a true story. And mm-hmm. I think that it really, it did take 10 to 15 minutes before anyone uh, came to, to rescue the queen. But he, he gives a perfectly written diagnosis of the English or the, the British experience and Thatcherism in the 1980s that also, if you want to read it, like certainly like has echoes of the present. I, I do find that every once in a while, one of the characters gives a speech about how Britain is falling apart mm-hmm. and you kind of, you look around and you can feel a little bit of intentionality, but yeah, it's, I, I can't imagine that that was how the conversation went in real life, just because you could spend days or weeks writing something that, uh, acute, but it's very effective. It's very effective. And, you know, I, I, I personally really enjoyed like the crown letting its hair down a little bit and playing some Elvis Costello and some specials yeah. and, you know, going around. <laughs> and <laughs> Can I tell you, like my husband, Zach was walking in and out and he walked in, I was rewatching part of this episode and he heard one of the music cues and was like, great music in the crown this season. And <laughs> I is. was just like, I know I was like, Oh, both times you've come in for the anti Thatcher episode in the eighties and yeah. like, you're getting those cues. Yeah. And if people are interested in this time period and what it like, some of the stuff that Fagan is talking about, there's a novel by a guy named David Peace who some people might know from uh, the Yorkshire Ripper series of novels, like 1974, 1977. It was made into a movie with Andrew Garfield. Um, he also wrote a book called GB84, which is about the coal miner strike and Thatcher's sort of uh, handling of that. And it's it's a really dense but fascinating read if you're more in- if you're interested in reading more on the topic. I don't have like a ton to say about the Fagan episode, other than that to me was when they pull Fagan out of the room. And after she sends her servant back out to get the mm-hmm. tea and she does her little basically like collapse. I'm like, that's yeah. why you, that's why you get Olivia Coleman. It's true. Yeah. You pay the big bucks. I, it is a bottle episode. I mean, even though it's not it, it like in the sense that it has many locations and you kind of watch him break into Buckingham palace multiple times, but in the sense that it's self-contained, but I, I was like so impressed by it just in terms of the crown just decides to do 50 minutes to completely dismantle uh, everything that it has already been saying about Margaret Thatcher. And it is, it's playwriting, um, but plays are great. And I, they both act it very well. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little about Taryn Ellis. Like last time when you were on, we were speaking about how these episodes, now that this show has gone on for four seasons, it's got such a nice backlog of episodes that it can now echo. Mm-hmm. And so clearly... I went back to Pride and Joy, which is when um, 
Elizabeth and Philip go to Australia and is also a big Margaret episode of her acting out and just kind of being like, I deserve to be an individual. And when, when Elizabeth comes back, she basically has to like wrap Margaret on the, on the knuckles for, for making a scene. Both of those sort of storylines were encapsulated in Charles and Diana's trip to Australia and New Zealand. It starts out so bad, it gets a lot better. And then the sort of mega stardom of Diana sort of explodes. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of ground zero for where Diana becomes like a global phenomenon? Is that tour or had it been starting before then? It had definitely been starting before. And, I, you know, this is another thing of you're making a TV show. You have to condense some things. I think it like really definitely does condense those things. But she was a superstar out of the gate. And I think kind of the upstaging problem, as they call it, was absolutely in full effect in Australia. But I do think that the political historical role that the the tour is said to present in this show, which is that Australia... So Australia is part of the British Commonwealth, which is a leftover of the empire. And like, frankly, I'm not a constitutional or political expert, so we don't, I don't really need to present on that, but the the queen is a a queen in name. And I think even at the beginning of the tour, there were rumblings of, we don't even need a queen in name. And then the tour was such a wild success. And Diana specifically was such a wild success um, that to this day, I believe she is still the monarchy, the, the, the queen or recognized in Australia and all of the, you know, it starts with a TV interview from the new prime minister of Australia. And those are real quotes. Yeah. So, so, so that is true. And that is a great summary of the geopolitical power that Diana had and everything about the resentment and the upstaging is definitely, definitely true. Even if it had started a bit earlier. Yeah. And I even thought just the idea that Charles had these theatrical ambitions uh, mm-hmm. was great because you get into the psychology of wanting to be on stage and wanting to be in the spotlight and wanting to be uh, seen and featured and appreciated. And and that's such like a huge theme among all the children as we see in favorites too is, well, except for the, the like, like Edward and Andrew who are, don't seem to care about that because they're just, <laughs> just bullying people. But um, Edward in particular gets a tough edit. I didn't yeah. know that he was that. Him just being like, I want to be a cop. <laughs> yeah. And the braces and yeah. him just, I mean, he was like, I got that, that kid after. kicked out of school for smoking because yeah. he wasn't smart enough not to get caught. But you, you get the sense that if you think about these tours as, as a play, as a theatrical mm-hmm. experience that Charles is like, and I'm going to be the star. This is going to be my moment to do a bunch of stuff. And whether it's because she can't make it up a hill or because everybody falls in love with her, I am constantly sort of like off to the, to the side stage here while the spotlight's on Diana. I guess, you know, I, I think that the, the thing that this episode did was also show the scope of the show, which is, mm-hmm. like you said, it is very CGI'd in places, but you really do get the feeling that like, this is a show that like travels and and looks yeah. out into the wider world. I'm not sure if they shot this actually in Australia, but it it looks great. The sheep station in particular is yeah. so beautiful when they have that kind of magic hour confrontation when they both decide to admit that they love each other, which uh, I found to be an incredibly heartbreaking scene. I think only because I don't read the the Charles admission as entirely genuine 
or maybe it is genuine, but you know, you know, at this point that the character is not someone who understands how to process emotions and, uh, and doesn't know what to do with the person in front of him and is just trying to make a situation work. And they both are. It's uh, I mean, again, it's really great writing. No one would ever have a conversation that like focused. And also it would not be resolved that quickly. They really go from like Camilla to, oh, I love you too. And let's have more sex and like sex in like 90 seconds. Yes. Um, but God, I mean, it is really beautiful and the, the writing is beautiful. And as you said, the scenery, like those cliffs or whatever behind them. um, And it's a lot like the scene in Pride and Joy where they're, they're like, she's throwing bottles at Philip. At, at some house in, in Australia or whatever. Right. And then, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you the last bit was the last scene between Elizabeth and Diana um, and the hug. Yeah. And, you know, for his, this is another example of like two people like perfectly articulating like these, these ideas, but it also was just an amazing collision of uh, post-war England or, you know, like mid-century English um, sort of, sensibilities with this very modern idea that you need connection and touch and feeling and you know almost like this new agey kind of idea and diana just kind of being like i need to feel that you love me not just sort of be part of the team yeah and also really just a desperation on diana's part and i think you know they they have been showing her bulimia throughout the episodes and they sort of show her family issues though, not as much, but they show her kind of loneliness and it's clearly a person who's at her wits end, but at her wits end in a very different way than anyone else in the family. Mm-hmm. And I find just kind of like the contrast in energies between Emma Corrin and everybody else to be really fascinating. And it can almost be a little jarring at times. Juliet Littman and I were talking on jam session a bit where Juliet was like, something seems off to me with Mm -hmm. Diana. And I was like, no, that's the point. Like she, like she didn't fit in at all. And she is, I mean, she's really young and she's struggling. And she just, as you said, has a completely different, like emotional intelligence and system. And did not fit with these people at all. And it's a disaster to the point that, you know, that final climactic hug, part of me wants to laugh when they do like the wide shot and you can just see Olivia Coleman's arms just kind of like flailing. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, in a way it's funny, but it's not, it's horrifying. It's really sad. And it is definitely one of the major problems that continues to haunt the Royal family, but you know, it's also just, I I think Diana really did suffer as a result. They are not emotionally warm people as every episode seems to reinforce in one way or another. So you mentioned how she hadn't really appeared in the previous two episodes other than sort of kind of talked about in favorites. And then I don't think she's in Fagan at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that that's what they're trying to do to show us the isolation of the character. Like by not having her around and checking in on her, I think mm-hmm. that they are asking us to intellectually understand no one has seen her or she is just like in a room somewhere or she is being kind of shunted off to the side. I think that's smart. I was reflecting a, a lot on the fact that it's not the Diana show. It is the mm-hmm. crown and it is a show about the Elizabeth character. And I think if you were doing the pure Diana show, you would do it 
very differently. And if Peter Morgan is listening, please feel free to make that show and I will watch every episode of it, you know, in whatever form you choose to do it. But it, it's a question of emphasis as well. And I think you're right that that, that that choice of perspective also does illuminate something about her existence and that she is just really kind of cut off from these people. And they, you know, see little references to her, like Anne, this is, can I just pick one bone? Yeah, sure. So everyone knows that, you know, I'm not biased. I love the crown, but every once in a while, something rubs me the wrong way. I think Anne is probably my favorite Mm -hmm. because she's not the only person who's a total garbage, not the only, she's the only child who's not a total garbage human. Um, But the way that she seems, they keep having Anne be like, I resent Diana's popularity and Diana's clothes. And, and Charles will too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's perceptive and it is also a little bit of just kind of like someone has to make the wheels turn. So she points out that major looming battle between Charles and Diana. But I don't really think Anne cared that much. It seems a little unfair to Anne, yeah. a character I enjoyed who seemed to be kind of above it. And that she keeps harping on it. I understand expositionally you have to do it because you can't have the whole circus in the show. It's more focused, but uh, justice for Anne. Yeah, I haven't watched ahead. I, I also would love for Princess Margaret to get a couple more lines other than would you like mm-hmm. some sherry and she'll break. Because <laughs> she obviously would probably, she obviously has the most perception of all of the people in that room of what's happening to these younger people. Yeah. And well, but that's what's so fascinating. And is also a little sad is like how she and the queen mother are just like the unit, like the, you know, unmarried older women who just kind of show up for support team whenever in a way that's sweet and it's nice. And, you know, Helena Bottom Carter offers the queen a drink, but it happened very quickly. And for someone who we've invested in so much time in for her to just be now one of like the old ladies in the yeah. corner, it's like, it's like, Oh, it's sad. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's my pleasure. You think well, things are going to go well in the last four episodes? I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating a super happy ending. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I do wish I honestly, if they wanted to do like 15 or 20 of these, I don't, I, I would be fine. Like, yeah, I, that's I just, where I am too. I'm glad they're doing two more seasons. All right, so we'll finish up the season on Monday. It'll be episode seven, eight, nine, and 10. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Thank you. So I'm joined with, by Amanda Dobbins, as usual, Hello, to discuss these last four episodes of The Crown Season 4. Amanda, thank you so much for doing this whole project with me, first of all. Thank you for having me. It's a real treat for me. This is a show that I love and it's fun to talk about it with you. And we've talked about 20 episodes once we're done this pod and then we Mm -hmm. have 20 more to go, right? Yes. This marks the end of the Olivia Coleman administration. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I thought we could start with a little bit more of a big picture conversation because... There are so many elements of the crown that I think have now started to echo back to the beginning of this series. And, you know, you can start to really look at this more as like a show unto itself rather than some sort of like quasi historical document. And I was wondering if you have noticed your relationship to the show changing over the years and seasons in any kind of describable way. Absolutely. I continue to think the show is masterful uh, in terms of 
its writing and the production value and the performances from Olivia Coleman on down are just extraordinary. We were talking before we started recording about how I spent some time this morning on Josh O'Connor fan pages, which is a, says a lot about a lot of things, but it is a testament to his acting and specifically that even playing such a ultimately despicable role as Prince Charles is in season four, that he is so magnetic that I wanted to know more about him. But my relationship to how the show, my relationship to the show's relationship to the royal family has changed. And maybe the show's relationship hasn't changed and I've just become wise to it. But I do think this season in particular has been not when they've turned on the royal family. And I, and I don't think any show that is this invested in this institution can be anti-monarchist. I think we have to acknowledge that if you're watching this show, you are consuming, if not royalist propaganda, then royalist like empathy. It's hard to listen to Philip's last monologue and think anything else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just, it's like, it's time spent. And I do ultimately believe that just putting her in the center and asking you to empathize specifically with Queen Elizabeth um, is ultimately to ask you to at least uh, digest and see the world from their point of view. But I think especially in the last half of season four, uh, the knives start turning a bit on the royal family and, and what it is and what it represents and what it has done and the human cost both within and certainly outside the royal family. And it's, it's an interesting line for the show to walk. I admire them for trying it. I, th- I mean, I think you have to at some point or else this just becomes cotton candy. Yeah. And the, the, the royal family is a, it's an anachronistic, patently ridiculous institution. It is in many ways like a, a fairy tale that people are forced to live through and they do reckon with that idea. But it has also been a source of cruelty and pain to millions of people in a lot of different ways when yeah. if, if you really tease it out and if you go back to some of the em- empirical history. So I it's it's been interesting. I was surprised. I think they've done it really effectively. I feel not queasier about my affection for the show, but queasier about my interest in the royal family. And I think that's the point. Yeah. I mean, I think that when this series first came on, there was a little bit like the most um, dismissive thing you could say, like the, the elevator pitch would be like, what if Queen Elizabeth, but hot, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was just sort of like imagining these people that most people's relationship with is that they're senior citizens and imagining their like wild, hot young years and then mm-hmm. placing them in this sort of canvas of World War II and having these figures like Winston Churchill and John F. Kennedy show up and like kind of minting Claire Foy and Vanessa Kirby as stars. And we should note that the crown has made like four or five careers <laughs> so far. At uh, least. Yeah. It's starting. Um, you know, yeah. we'll see what happens for like Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin, et cetera. But, it, you know, as it gets further and further, I was trying to grapple with what I, whether I was like, is this wish fulfillment? Like, is this basically, I'm so curious about these people just because I I know them as celebrities in my in my lifetime, and mm-hmm. that this I am now having, you know, almost in the in a, in a like a sort when you watch Steve Jobs and you're just like this conversation did not happen this way, but Jesus, if it did, like it's so fascinating and it's almost like this is what they would have said had they had a screenwriter preparing their remarks for them, 
And right. I, I love that. Like, that's fine with me. But watching some of the, especially the last two episodes, Avalanche and um, War, I was just like, you know, this is probably not how it went. This is probably not what Elizabeth said to Charles when he finally gets it up to ask her for a divorce. But it is, maybe it is essentially what was said, you know? Well, I think that's possibly the most dangerous wish fulfillment of all. And I Mm -hmm. did find myself wondering uh, this a bit, particularly in smaller moments. For example, in the kind of last Margaret Thatcher episode, uh, when she is forced to, she's forced out of office. And there's a moment where Olivia Coleman as the queen is recapping her audience with Margaret Thatcher to Philip. And Olivia Coleman starts doing Margaret Thatcher as the queen. Yes. Yeah. And it's hilarious. And I love Olivia Coleman. And to be fair to the real queen, it's always kind of been written that she does have more of a sense of humor than possibly she lets on. But is the queen as witty and funny and doing Margaret Thatcher impressions? I'm not sure. I don't know if these people, and it's not just that are these people able to speak in these Shakespearean monologues, which we know they're not, but are these people doing this kind of deep analysis? Has the queen ever really stood up and called Prince Charles on his tremendous bullshit? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We would like to think so. We what because that's part of the exercise of the crown and the exercise of humanizing this person is ultimately hoping that this person like is as interesting and worthy of all this scrutiny as you know we've spent 40 hours of television at this point and what like 60 something maybe 70 years in her reign. Yeah. But like is she and can any one person really live up to that scrutiny? I'm not sure. The theme of this season seems to be I just want to be loved. You know, it, it, it sure. seems to be um, a, several of these characters over the course of the last two seasons, really, because I think Philip had this kind of moment last season. And I think Margot's had, had that this moment of, uh, several times. She seems to be she has sort of a relapse of it in the hereditary principle. But it's basically these characters arriving at these points where they're just like, I am not getting what I need as a human being from this family, from this life, from this role. And then eventually coming back down to earth and realizing nobody is, mm-hmm. you know, nobody is getting what they want out of life. But it's so thematically kind of consistent over the course of the year about like you can kind of feel the roots of Charles's need for attention back in mm-hmm. his theater days. And Diana obviously is like, I, I can express myself through performance. Oh my God. I think that-, that, yeah, I know. I mean, and, and we're, we'll get to the specific episodes, but. Did you did you do you agree that that feels like the theme at least interpersonally of of that because I think that like there's always going to be in the crown there's going to be the sort of emotional theme and then mm-hmm. there's going to be the broader socio historical theme of of the of the season. Sure, and I think the way that those two things intermingle within the royal family, there's a difference between wanting to be loved loved and wanting to be appreciated, mm-hmm. right? And wanting to be loved is about this family who don't really know how to speak to each other. And wanting to be appreciated is this family that has just a tremendous amount of expectations put on them because of dynastic roles that are thrust upon them and a media attention and, and they're pitted against each other to some extent. And so it's the, again, and it's the initial tension, even in season one of the crown, which is like the, the private versus the public and the personal versus the role and being torn between these two things and how no human really 
besides the queen can successfully manage to bridge that gap. And it just tears all of them apart in yes. different ways. And and it limits the amount that they're willing to allow other people to be happy, which I think is sort of mm-hmm. a crucial thing. Like one of my favorite sort of running gags, and we, we brought it up last pod, but is Anne sort of her inability to like ever like truly allow <laughs> Charles to be happy in one way or the other. Like she won't indulge him in his unhappiness either. He's yeah. like, and yet is also like right there always to just sort of be like, Diana is a mess and and she's mm-hmm. not right for this family. Right. Well, it's interesting. I think it's an avalanche when they put Anne into just like the narrator and mm-hmm. the the omniscient like psychologist, basically. And in the span of two minutes, she has more emotional awareness on behalf of every single character on the show than once again, any British person has had about anything <laughs> in their entire life. I mean, that is the number. That's the most unrealistic part of the crowd is all of these people being able to put their finger on and directly express emotions, motivations, wants, and needs, which just British people don't do. Yeah. But, um, but yes, Anne is sort of, it's, she's not even the Cassandra. She's just the realist and she has to show up in everybody's face and be like, this sucks too bad. Like once an episode. Yeah. Did you, so we could start with the episodes that we're going to discuss. The Margaret episode is just super depressing. Um, but it's, it, I, I, I just admire this show for knowing exactly how to execute a season where they're going to have so many major historical moments, then a couple Mm -hmm. of interesting footnote historical moments that you may not have known about. And -hmm. then there is going to be a broader kind of family uh, dynamic. And then usually over the last two seasons, they've had like a Margaret episode where, where where they really do focus on her turmoil. Uh, Did you know about, about the other cousins who were in the hospital? I knew sort of the sanitized version that the royal family was peddling, that Nerissa and Catherine Bozlion um, were sent to an institution at some point. But what that means in reality and to see it is completely different. And I was pretty, uh, I, I was shocked and really upset by it. And I, and I, and I kind of feel like this episode is a little bit for people like me who have read the, you, the official description for a long time. And then you see what's going on. And it also, you know, I, most of the time when I watch the crown, as soon as a historical event or a character shows up, I'm like, Oh, this is the Mountbatten episode or, Oh, this is yeah. the something episode. And I didn't know what was going me on either. And, and that reveal was I have some questions about the psychologist and uh, her uh, practices and whether that was legal. But besides, <laughs> I, but like it doesn't really matter because it's so horrifying. Yeah, doesn't she say like like her first meeting with her? Like she's like, I have some professional colleagues who are, who just let me know that your cousins yeah. are. Yeah, I guess yeah. like maybe they didn't have HIPAA in the sixties or seventies or whatever. Yeah. But it's like it's sort of beside the point. Um, I found it. Uh, quite effective and upsetting. And then you add on the the Margaret of it all, which is really depressing and about someone just uh, coming to acceptance with their sense of purposelessness mm-hmm. and the cruelty of their family is, it's really tough. I watched this one and I didn't watch any more Crown episodes for the night because I was just like, wow, this is, these people are gross. These, yeah. these people are just are, are heartless and, and inhuman. And this institution is as inhuman. We say that a lot, but like, it's cruel. Yeah. And then there was, I mean, also just her getting edged out by Andrew. It's just like, oh so that he can have his 21st birthday. Um, I thought I just could have used a lot more dazzle. I wish we had, 
wish we'd gotten a little bit more like dazzle, a little bit more 80s Bowie going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved the conversation between Elizabeth and Margaret where she's like, and he's a friend of Dorothy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's not my impression that the real queen would be hip to that lingo at that point though, or, you know, know what's going on. They haven't always portrayed her as a person who is like aware of the outer society workings. People are always explaining the gossip to her and then suddenly she's like really in the know, but I I did really enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Would someone who knows the phrase a friend to Dorothy not know who Billy Joel was? Billy Joel. Yeah. I um maybe she's just behind the times. Yeah. So she's just <laughs> she's like 10 to 20 years behind everything else. And so and Billy Joel is like fairly up to date. The next episode uh, was was 48 to 1, which I've seen a lot of people say is their favorite of the season. I think it's definitely like the strongest political intrigue episode mm-hmm. uh and if you in the same way where you were like I needed to stop watching crown episodes for the night after hereditary principle. I think that it puts to rest any sort of, um, Margaret's kind of hot, you know, like, (laughs) like any, any sympathy people had for Margaret Thatcher, I think gets snuffed out there. So people like it because it is so definitively just portraying what, like the common internet understanding of Margaret Thatcher. I, you know what I, I think it is, is because it actually puts Elizabeth into action, which she just okay. doesn't get to do a lot of. She's, she's That's largely true. like receiving guests or having lunch, you know, for a yeah. lot of the last two seasons. And she actually gets to play a part in the game in this one. Right. And so much of it is about her doing nothing and saying nothing. And in this episode, she gets to do something politically. And in a later episode, she finally uh, puts her foot down. For certain members of her family, which I also, you know, it, it's true that the last third of the season is her finally, her personality peeking out a little bit. Yeah, I have some notes about the press strategy. Let's do it in this. Let's do okay? it. Okay, because so I, the queen decides that she's not going to deny the story. Mm-hmm. And she's like, maybe I want people to know that I don't agree with her. And their press secretary, Michael Shea, who is a real person and did become a successful novelist, is like, I don't know, ma'am. But then they do it. And then it backfires and then he has to take the fall. So, and, and it's portrayed as, a, as, as somewhat unfair, I would say. Yes. Here's my thing. I just, I think that you have to be able to spin the queen wanting Margaret Thatcher to take some sort of action against apartheid South Africa as a positive. And if you can't spin that one way or another, you shouldn't be the press officer anymore. That's where I am. Very true. But I, I do think that we should just also talk about the idea of briefing as it functions in the British media and in British government. You you may think that this is anachronistic. It is not. Boris Johnson's <laughs> like major, like most of his senior advisors, they just went through a purge there in mm-hmm. England because there was an inter-office civil war between Boris Johnson's girlfriend essentially and mm-hmm. a woman that they had brought on i think to be like basically the the face and voice of the government like the spokesperson for the government versus these two guys lee kane and dominic cummings who were very big in the brexit campaign and and the vote leave campaign and the two guys had essentially been briefing against this woman that boris johnson and his wife had just hired to become the spokesperson for the government and it just blew up in everybody's faces. Like every, right. like there was like maybe one day of 
number 10 downing sources say. And then it was just like all out in the open and everybody got their knickers in a twist, so to speak. And it's just incredible to watch this happen over and over again there. Wasn't there also something about a hedgehog in the whole Yeah, breakdown? like the one of the like the <laughs> one of the guys was was a former reporter for one of the tabloids and had like doorstopped somebody in a hedgehog outfit once. <laughs> I I don't remember. Like the like we're we're so like we're like, oh my god, everybody's going to Substack here. And they're just like daily mail <laughs> reporters just dressing up like hedgehogs and just getting after it. And you make a good point, and I, it's a point that the show uh, is very interested in and, you know, that continues to reverberate, especially with the royal family now, which is kind of, if you're going to get involved with the British press, you got to be prepared to go round after round or else mm-hmm. you will lose. They they are a very specific and, speaking of vicious, vicious uh, institution with their own norms and their own worlds. And yeah, you know, if you're not the target of it, then you kind of have to admire it because they've just created a whole world for themselves. Yeah. But I think there is a reason that the Royal family has historically not been involved. And, you know, there's that episode from last season when they do a BBC documentary, it totally backfires. They're like, Nope, we don't want to be involved in the press anymore. And but it, it's too late. Yeah. And even now, I think there's a real, they obviously need the press to survive, but because what are they without the press? They're, they are just press creatures. They are national press creatures. And at the same time, they just absolutely ruin the lives of every single person in their path. And we will see that in a very literal sense next season, I believe in the crown, but you see it continue with Harry and Megan. That's a major part of it. Mm-hmm. And so the choosing to to get in the ring, albeit for I think the correct reasons in this particular episode, you're right. It has ramifications. It I feels just, like yeah. I mean, forty eight to one. Spin that one feels like the last gasp of the crown, not the show, but the actual institution having some sort of role in policy in any kind of mm-hmm. functional way that we see. I mean, I, I keep going back to this thing that um, I, is it Michael Fagan uh, says mm-hmm. to her when he's in. Buckingham Palace and he's just sort of commenting on how everything is sort of falling apart and they need like a paint job and the wallpaper needs to be redone and everything needs to be touched up because it is crumbling a little bit. I mean, and she is sort of locked away up up in in these castles with just not much like functional responsibility. And when you think about where the show started and her as this like basically like the backbone of a nation (laughs) at war and now she's just like, all I can do is not confirm or deny something to a newspaper to slightly edge something forward. And that almost blows up in her face too, because Margaret yeah. almost, Thatcher almost turns it around on her. Yeah. There's a scene earlier this season where they're getting ready. They're marching out to a garden party mm-hmm. and it's like Philip and Margaret and the queen mother. Grumbling oh, and they're just like, like, I why can't we believe we have to talk and to these she's people. Like, you remember what the, they taught us? And it's important to like, meet the citizens. And then there's that amazing shot of them 20 feet away from anybody else in the garden party, just completely, it's completely distanced and still, um, at removed from society. And yeah. it, that that's their continuing fight and problem. Was the Claire Foy scene shot some other time? Or do you think that was a new scene? I seem to remember some paparazzi. I mean, it's not like a flashback. We haven't seen it in another episode of The Crown. I seem to remember some paparazzi shots that 
she did that during the production of these two seasons okay. as opposed to the, um, the, the previous seasons. I was lovely. It was great to see her. Great to have her back. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm trying to think if there's any other 48 to one stuff. Oh, I guess I was just going to say it's worth noting that like in this show, they make the Commonwealth sound like this great thing that everybody was so psyched to be a part of. And it was like a family and that they were standing up against this sort of axis of evil that was apartheid, which I apartheid was obviously unambiguously awful, but the Commonwealth and the idea of the British empire had some inherent issues. Yeah. And I mean, it, this show continues to complicate the issue. Margaret Thatcher just being like, what is this? And I yeah. don't have time for this. Um, I don't think she's on the right side with respect to sanctions. And I don't think she's on the right side of public opinion. But just in terms of what is this organization besides a thing that the royal family made up to continue to feel important as all of its power is crumbling away. It's I mean, that's correct. Yeah. So the last two episodes, I think we can talk about in a coupling, which is Avalanche and um, and War. So because those are essentially charting the end of Margaret Thatcher and the beginning of the end of Charles and Diana. Although Charles and Diana really never have a honeymoon on this show. I don't, you know, you had said the last time we spoke that it's important to remember that like they had kind of met each other like a dozen times before they got mm-hmm. married. So it's not like yeah. this was a great love affair that fell off. It was more like a propped up thing that didn't work out. Exactly. I can't tell whether I'm just like really impressed or or there's something off-putting or what it, what it is that I loathe Charles so much now after these two episodes. The character. And, I, and, and this is somebody that I was just like, after season three, I was just like, this is just an amazing creation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I have so much affection for this guy and so interested in him. And a, I think a lot of his decay happens off screen. So that's why it might be a little confusing for me because he's just such a fucking prick by the end of this series, this season. Mm-hmm. But you're just like, God, this like this guy's so different. I guess he would be, though, wouldn't he? I mean, it's, he's not a teenager anymore. Yeah, he. I believe the the Billy Joel dance is celebrating his thirty seventh birthday. Right, and he is. So it's important to. Uh, I agree. He's a complete asshole, and I think what Josh O'Connor does in terms of unlocking, like, just a new level of cruelty and not even not indifference, but like venomous or like rage and indifference and indifference towards Diana is really upsetting and spectacular. I think you're meant to understand him as a product of everything else we've seen. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think he's both a person who, whose parents never liked him very much as as we've seen throughout this season and the previous, and who is put in a very weird position, not just in terms of being like heir to the throne and how strange monarchy is, but also he's just in waiting. He's not, Mm -hmm. he's only important. He's like the vice president. Um, but, but he's waiting for his mom to die, which is very strange. And then everyone has been sucking up to him in his entire life. But 
he is the product of all of that. And then he takes the path you don't want him to take. And normally mm-hmm. when we see these people, like in a movie, you see someone a very tough childhood or isn't loved, but they find a way to express themselves or they find the person who makes it better for them. Or they like, they figure out to how to write the mistakes of their past. And he is not writing the mistakes. He's repeating the mistakes with a new level of venality that is, is quite impressive. Yeah. And it's just completely fixated on the one thing in life that he can't have, which is Camilla. And right probably allows her to become, at least in the world of the show, an outsized tragedy in his life when in fact, almost everybody is like, not only is this not that big of a deal, but newsflash, it's pretty well known that Camilla does not feel the same way about you. Now, I don't know whether that's accurate or not. Or the, I think those scenes between uh, Josh O'Connor and em- Emerald Fennel are really cool because the language is so precise Mm-hmm. And she does a lot of very specific, like, I am affirming this without ever, like, trapping myself in a place where I am going to have to leave my husband for you because I'm like, but you're never right. going to leave, Diana. So that doesn't really matter. So we don't have to really address that. Right. I think the other thing that is really interesting about this, the Prince Charles character, is that I, I'm sympathetic for Diana. And I think that this show... And this season has shown a lot of like her setbacks and the ways that they haven't supported her and what a weird family it is and how cold it is. And, you know, they have showed her bulimia. I I would say, I think what they've shown is sensitive. They've maybe not developed kind of her mental health struggle as much as is a factor, but I, I think that's possibly only because the show is not really told from her perspective. And so, but They've also pointed out that she has her flaws too. And it's not like the angel sitting across from Prince Charles that why can't you just figure it out? I am am speaking specifically of the Phantom of the Opera scene, which is a scene that is just going to haunt me for the rest of my life. I, particularly because I don't like it when people sing. Uh, it just makes me really <laughs> uncomfortable. And so as soon as she started singing, I mean, I what I did is I pulled the blanket that I was using fully over my head, grabbed my phone and just started texting you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And so I didn't watch it the first time I just listened. And then once I knew kind of the length and how much time I had to spend watching her sing Phantom of the Opera, I went back and watched it. But I mean, that scene is horrifying and like a funny in a vicious sort of way, but it is also illuminating because she says, I love to perform. I love to express myself. And this is a person who not only completely misunderstands her partner and Mm -hmm. it goes both ways a little bit. Like he obviously doesn't understand her and hasn't tried at all, but it's not like giving someone a gift of you singing Phantom of the Opera on stage is not really a gift for the other person, if you will. Right. Unless that person is like the number one Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. (laughs) Um, I'm guessing Prince Charles is not, but the other thing is that she is a person who likes attention. She likes the limelight and mm-hmm. they do establish that. And they establish that as Charles's other Achilles heel as someone who has always been in the shadows and someone who really wants just a, like a moment to shine to borrow a phrase from the crown. And so he is uniquely paired with someone to bring out the worst in him. And like, again, in normal narrative storytelling, we expect people to rise above that. And he does not. He goes yeah. 100% opposite direction. Yeah. There's a lot of montage storytelling in these last few episodes. And I think one of the probably the fastest things that are, is the most important, the one that goes by the quickest, is the essentially the trap he lays for her, which is once he doesn't get a chance to read his letter mm-hmm. in front of Philip and Elizabeth, 
He essentially Ooh. sets it up so that he's going to isolate Diana, not respond to her phone calls, not like ba- basically like, you know, seal her up in a, in a, in another house somewhere. And then once she trips up, he's going to be like, well, you know, all yeah. bets are off now. And in, in, in between that time, I think we are led to believe that he is still seeing Camilla. Oh, yeah, of course. He's 100% seeing, seeing Camilla. The trap's important, but I, we got to talk about that scene that yeah. with the, the summit between Diana and Charles and Philip and the Queen, which is maybe the lowest point for the Queen in the whole season, if I had to, to guess, because I'm curious how you interpreted Diana's reactions in that scene. So do, basically, do I see it in the way that Charles saw it? Yeah. I don't know because, you know, I felt like the avalanche part was kind of yada yada. Mm-hmm. We spent more time with uh, worrying about Mark Thatcher getting across his, his car rally than we did about Charles living through that avalanche. Now, obviously, right. maybe that was exactly how it felt. Like there was really, he was not, it was quickly right. ascertained that he was not in danger and yada, you know, et cetera. But I felt like I didn't know whether or not Diana actually was scared that Charles was going to die. I think my thought was as she's walking into that room, she realizes what's at stake and she realizes what she could be taken away from her if this all goes apart, goes, goes away. She's got that dynamite dress on and she wants to go to New York and all this stuff that's going to happen. And Charles is still the bridge to that. I agree. And I also think she realizes she doesn't want to lose. I think that she doesn't I don't know whether her feelings for Charles are genuine at this point. And like, what are we talking about? No one can actually know that. But in the show itself, I picked up less of, I don't want to lose this person, but I don't want to lose this war between us. Mm -hmm. And to divorce would be to hand Charles his victory and to stay together is not only keeping everything that you just mentioned, which is very important, but also to, to win. And I, like I, I think that's a little bit just what I picked up in Emma Corrin's performance, but it is also the the other part is how quickly Olivia Coleman is like, okay, great, it's settled. Philip yes. doesn't speak. Prince Charles doesn't speak. Josh O'Connor does an amazing job of communicating his anguish and outrage without speaking. But that's a pretty unfair scene for Charles. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and I do. It's not that I blame Diana, but I'm just like, oh, this is all really ugly. And then you just double down on the ugliness. So I think that's why you end this season with kind of a sick feeling in your stomach is because yeah. there's actually nothing you're rooting for. And, you, know, no. you know that they're not going to stay together and that her life is going to tragically end. Right. You know that he actually does wind up with Camilla. So in a weird way, he gets what he wants in the end. Right. You are not rooting for him to be with Camilla, but at the same time, you can see that the Diane and Charles are not right for one another. So you're sort of left confronted with disassembling the, what we usually go into TV shows, especially with, which is like, I need to have like a rooting interest in something or someone, or I I'm watching 45 hours of the office because I want these two people to get together. And on the crown, you're kind of like, these people should never have met, you know, like that's that, that turns out he should have just kept dating Diana's sister and then dated another woman and then dated (laughs) another woman until he Finally fucking talk Camilla into leaving Andrew. <laughs> the other interesting thing, the TV show kind of knows this, so it tries to re-engineer you back to rooting for the queen. Mm-hmm. And it gives her, and we're 
going to war now and I don't want to step on everything else because we do also have to talk about Margaret Thatcher. But it gives her that climactic speech of finally just yelling at Charles and being like, you're both selfish. You both suck. You need to get it together. Act like a king if you want to be a king. I can't handle this anymore. And it's uncharacteristic of of her. And it is, you know, having an opinion, which even with her family, within her family, she tries not to do. Um, but so that's not where the this show ends. It gives Philip a speech, which echoes the finale two seasons before and the climactic fight mm-hmm. between Matt Smith and Claire Foy. I think he uses that same, like the essence of your duty is, is brought from that fight. And I think that's also an echo of uh, episode one of the whole show. So it's like the whole theme, it brings it back to the queen. And then the last shot, do you remember who it's of? Of this season? Yeah. Is it not of Diana in the family picture? It's, it's of Diana. And yeah. it focuses on Diana, but that's just noticeable because the last three seasons have ended on a close-up of the queen. Every single one, oh. the very last scene is, I think in season one, it's it's usually a photograph being taken. And again, season two, the very last shot is of um, a family photograph and they snap at everybody and then it zooms in on the queen. But that they finish on Diana instead is fascinating because it, to me, it's basically, okay, now it's going to be the queen versus Diana. Like Charles is, you're not even supposed to care about her. It's about spheres of power and mm-hmm. this person who's going to haunt this institution and who will ultimately meet like a completely tragic death as a result of it. But it's um, this kind of larger than life specter. And I, th- I thought that was like a fascinating choice and like pretty chilling, but it's yeah. true. I didn't walk away from it being like, oh, goody. I was just like, oh, wow. Shit is going to get really, really messy next season, which yeah. spoiler alert, it is. And they, I think that they generally do, you know, like they don't have Queen Elizabeth, you know, fighting in the Falklands. Like this is a very realistic show. Imelda Staunton is not going to be like moving around a lot. Like they probably right. will do a lot with her, but mm-hmm. it really does feel like it's going to be DeBecky's season next season. I think it has to be. Yeah. And I, I mean, and that is certainly what uh, becomes like the major story of the nineties in the Royal mm-hmm. family is. And then as Diana splits off, which spoiler alert, she does. I'm really sorry if we're spoiling history for people, it doesn't end well. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> But kind of the the crown and the royal family trying to keep attention versus Diana being her own huge media sensation and yeah. a media sensation that was like kind of uncontrollable and ultimately did contribute to her death um, is the major theme. I'm very curious to see, and I don't think this will happen in season five. I think it'll be season six, but obviously Peter Morgan has already told part of this story. The Queen, yeah. which is an excellent film and is also on Netflix right now in case you're jonesing for more crown content. Um, is about the period of time right after Diana's death mm-hmm. and how the royal family deals with it. And and he's been thematically consistent, like his thoughts on the media and Diana and how the family interacted with her. They, It doesn't seem like it's, maybe they've developed, but I don't think he's really changed his perspective very much. And he uses the same hunting motif over and over again. But I'm I'm really curious. Is he going to tell it again? Will he tell it slightly differently? Right. Like what well, has doing five seasons of this show taught you about this particular point in time? I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things about war that I wanted to go over. First mm-hmm. of all, 
shout out to parliamentary uh, government and just like you and me just being able to be like, we have no confidence in Sean Fennessy and just replacing him <laughs> on the big picture. Like, 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 it's just so amazing when they're just like, eh, I'm kind of done with you, Matt, Margaret Thatcher. You're, you have to like stand down. I thought that they did a really good job. I, I actually felt like Josh O'Connor, they did not age up Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin particularly well. I mean, I think they did a decent job, but I, I thought that the way they age Margaret Thatcher was very effective. She gets increasingly more hunched over. She seems increasingly more like she doesn't have control of her face entirely. Mm-hmm. And she obviously starts to lose her control, grip over her emotions. And... um I, I thought that was like a fascinating sort of portrait of the the thing about the crown is that it's permanent. And ultimately like these prime ministers come and go. And we, she says that with all of her sort of, you know, and when she has these sort of times with the prime minister, she's like, well, I've seen three of you in the last 10 years. Or I, you know, right. and she's always there. And yes. she does dap Margaret up with, with the necklace at the end mm-hmm. uh, or the right. brooch rather. The, the badge. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I thought it was an incredible. I, I guess who's the next prime minister? Was it is it major? Yeah, I believe so. I only know that because I know that when the Charles and Diana separate, it's John Major who announces right. it, and then Tony Blair is in the Queen. I know all my history through Peter Peter Morgan shows. <laughs> so thank thank you, Peter Morgan. Uh, did you have any anything to say about like sort of the end of Margaret and like Gillian Anderson's performance this season? I thought she was fantastic. And I guess I don't have enough memory of real life Margaret Thatcher to have a comment on whether her voice is too much of a SNL impression versus the real thing. I just was so tickled by Olivia Coleman doing her own version of it. Yeah. And uh, just a real force. I thought they had such chemistry. And that's so interesting because we haven't really seen Elizabeth, the character, go toe to toe with a woman in any capacity. Mm-hmm. Her The first three seasons has been a woman in a man's job and dealing with all the gray haired men yelling at her as she uh, references in that goodbye, goodbye speech. I, I just continue to be shocked with how abrupt the British government can be. And it's also, yeah. she's there for 11 and a half years and then they're like, goodbye. And she has to leave tomorrow. It seems I'll never understand parliamentary procedure. It's like, you gotta move out. You gotta yeah. move out because you only won like 51, 49. <laughs> It's just also like everyone woke up one day and was like, well, that's it. We're done. And, you know, there were some other issues. I, I I think, you know, the Fagan episode was a kind of a great one episode summary of a lot of the ways in which Thatcher changed or uh, dismantled a lot of the UK in the 80s. And from the historical perspective that you and I are more familiar with. But it, it is interesting that you really only got one episode and then snippets here and there. It was not a full treatise on like the socio-political impact of Margaret Thatcher in the UK yeah. in the eighties. No. And I, and I, I do wonder whether or not it, it had, they wanted to make this an eight season show, whether you, there is a, a longer eighties treatment, whether the eighties is a season and a half or not. I will, let's talk about the fight because I think that's obviously there, there's a couple of, you know, a lot of great musical moments throughout this season. There's a sure. lot of like very funny moments. Uh, there's some heartwarming moments, but I think the fight is going to be the takeaway scene where they just do marriage story. In, right. In, I hug who I want. Yeah. I, I hug, hug who, who I, I love. <laughs> and who could you be referring to? Um, <laughs> I don't know if that happened. I don't know if it happened like that. That was great writing. That was a fucking 
great fight. That's a Hall of Fame fight between a, it, between a couple. Yeah, I mean, it is Marriage Story 2.0, and I'd like to congratulate you on your meme. Thank you. Uh, which was really good. And I also want to thank you for just like sensitivity and meme sharing, which you waited <laughs> until you knew I was done with the yes. episode. And then I just got a text message from you that was just like, okay, I made something for you. And yeah. I was like, I have no idea what's about <laughs> to happen. And I'd also just seen the Phantom of the Opera episode. So I was very nervous. Yeah. But it was a great meme. Like you thought I was going to sing for you? I don't. I mean, who can know at this point? Did you see that coming? Did you see the, it being a VHS tape no. with her singing Phantom of the No, and the worst opera? part was like the next scene is him being like, that sucked to his sister. It's just like <laughs> so brutal. Suck. I know, it but really it's still brutal. Yeah. The shot of them on the couch with him just looking in disgust is my new meme for me watching pretty much anything except for The Crown season four. I also, I just, you know, in terms of historical accuracy, the the Billy Joel performance definitely happened. It's yeah. a real thing. It's on YouTube. And they, yeah. But the I have no idea about the Phantom of the Opera gift. I've never seen that referenced in anything. And I... I think it seems too specific to make up, but it also seems like if she actually did perform like somewhere like on the West end on the actual theater and what, like a hundred people are involved. And then all of this, the staffers who are around and probably could hear it in the next room because there's no privacy anywhere in the Royal family. Like we would know about it. Yeah. Right? Cause it would have been you like, I think I would know about that. Also it just seems like, so you just made one copy of this video of princess Diana right. performing in fan of the opera. Right. Um, I have to also shout out the, the three or four New Yorkers that get, to get a cameo in like the kind of early New York one version of like, Oh, yeah. oh Princess Diana. If Charles <laughs> doesn't want you, we'll take you. You're a great lady. I can see why you're going to be queen. Oh, like it was just like the, the crown does New York was great. But can that I also, whole, no, yeah, well, I was going to say the scene after that, because we see that by Camilla watching it, great Emerald and fennel, like smoking silently performance. And then cut to Camilla's, like kitchen in her country home, the hutch with the China and the green in that particular room, just great kitchen inspiration. I, I would just love to know how many days Emerald Fennel w- worked on this show. Okay. Cause it really Probably feels like, like three. three. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, it's like the same light. She's on the phone for most of it. She gets in mm-hmm. a car once mm-hmm. and, and is, just, and watches TV and smokes a lot. It just seems right. like the best job in the whole world. Right. <laughs> Funnily enough, I think that sort of like summarizes Camilla's relationship to Charles and the royal family for like 30 to 40 years. And one of like, no, I'm serious. And I think in addition to being in love with Andrew Parker Bowles and all of this stuff was like, she did not actually want to deal with all of this nonsense. And being in the royal family is a pain and you have no privacy and you have to do all this stuff and you get judged by the media, as she says in that speech. And she was like, no, thanks. I'm not interested in it. I would rather just like take some phone calls and be smoking and meet up at country houses at the weekend. I just love how fucked up and complicated people can be. I just, I just love that she never lets him off the hook. She obviously doesn't know that that's what he means when he's like, I'll take care of this. When she tells him like, oh, you know, like I could never be that pretty or that loved. Right. And she doesn't I mean, know that she's setting him off on this sort of, this, this sort of run that he's going to go on. Um, that's, that's insane. That is like in terms of, if we're comparing it to Marriage Story, when the Adam Driver character is like, I was young and I didn't sleep with anyone and wants credit for that, which is like an absurd thing to say. But Charles being like, you hugged an AIDS patient, a child AIDS patient, and that was really selfish of you because we it was could do that to Camilla. Too. Yeah. 
is like, is 400 times more insane and divorced it, from reality. Yeah. It's also like, this concept that they seem to have of each other, of, of themselves where it's like, we need the publicity, but we also don't want to like stoop below the level that we feel like we should. Like we, 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 we consider certain things beneath the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of office that we hold, but we also really do want that attention. And Diana was like, no, I will go out and meet people. I will go out and touch people. I like it when people say nice dress. It means right. a lot to me. I know what to right. say back to them. Right. And so she completely changes what the royal family is and does as a result of that, because now they all uh, have to, it's not just that they do their charity work and they've done like a tremendous amount of charity work always, but that it needs to be photographed. There needs to be something emotional about it. There needs to be, that's because that's, that's how it sells. And then also the, the, the fashion element and them as celebrities in Mm -hmm. the, you know, in the Us Weekly sense, said with all respect to the Us Weekly of a decade ago, which I really enjoyed, but they didn't used to do that. They thought of themselves as kind of state figures and Diana's success in the other arena kind of edges them off the stage to the point that they have to adopt like her strategy uh, in order to survive. I mean, my one of my favorite episodes of the entire series is Aberfan from last year. Uh, mm-hmm. when Elizabeth goes and visits the Welsh mining town that's had this this landslide hit the school and just a d- absolute tragedy. And she cannot... The, the whole thing is, is she going to cry? Like, the, right. the press wants to know, the people working in the palace want to know, like, is she going to display any empathy with these people or is she just going to walk through this town in her pink coat? And the the juxtaposition of that with Diana reaching over and hugging that boy... And it, the way it revolts Charles is just, it's so amazing. And reveals a lot about him. And yeah. And just yeah. what a, just, it, it does seem like growing up in this institution, it doesn't seem like it, it's a fact that growing up in this institution just completely limits your ability to, to be a human and to understand other people in a way that is pretty disgusting. It's a great fight. Um you know, so what do we get next? What 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 is your? Is, I guess they're they, obviously Dominic West and Elizabeth Becky are taking over as Charles and Diana. Imelda Staunton takes over as Elizabeth. Who's Philip? Uh, Jonathan Price, I believe. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. shout out to the show. Is just like we can just cast who we want. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. They don't have to look exactly like. <laughs> make um, it work. So we get into the mid nineties now, right? Yeah, so I think we'll start pretty soon after this. This ends in 1990, I believe. And I think we might skip to 92, but that's as far as we're going to skip, which, as you noted, they don't really age Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin in the same way. They try with Emma Corrin's wig. And the wig is historically accurate, but it like becomes more and more apparent as a wig as this season goes on. Sure. I, that's that's one of my notes. We At some point, we're going to have to talk about TV <laughs> wigs more generally, but we don't need to do it on this episode. So I, I think I, it'll I feel start- like that was a subtle shot at Grace Frazier at Nicole Kidman's red tresses. I honestly, those are okay. They're, uh, I love Anya Taylor-Joy and I love the Queen's Gambit, but one of those early wigs, it yeah. was just very clearly a wig. Okay. Yeah. And I understand that it saves time, but whatever. I think we can't start any later than 1992 because that is when the Andrew Morton book about Princess Diana, that Diana cooperates with and gives interviews to behind the scenes comes out. And that is let we've crossed a couple Rubicons, but that is the true Rubicon in terms of their marriage and in terms of the Royal families and Diana's relationship with the press. Mm -hmm. So 
that'll have to be in the show. And it typically goes by prime minister. And as I mentioned, Tony Blair is, has just been elected when Diana dies in a car crash in 1997. So I would imagine that that would be the last episode of the Mm -hmm. season. And in between you get divorce and really humiliating press wars, including some, do you know about Charles and Camilla's uh, phone sex tapes? No. Okay. I'm, I will let you Google that on your own time. I don't want to spoil that for people, but shout out to my algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that'll happen. And the, the boys become older and they're not really, they're not involved, but the kind of the, the war of where they are and who they're allegiant to, um, which gets really sticky and sad. Yeah. So a lot of Diana stuff. I wish I should know about like British history in the nineties, but I don't really until Tony Blair gets elected. I'm just excited for Blur and Oasis to make cameos if possible. (laughs) It's been such a pleasure talking about this show with you. We'll do it again next season. And yeah, we're going to have this as a special episode so people can listen to our entire conversation, which I think now is like two hours long about the crowd season four. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you, Chris.